All right, let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we'll be studying verses 1 through 11 this morning. The title of the message is Hosanna in the Highest. Hosanna in the Highest. Something interesting about this account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is that this is the, the, only the third event in the Gospels that is in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, leading up to the cross. It's only the third event that is across all four books, which tells us that this is a significant event if all four Gospel writers are going to tell us about it. And so we begin in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Sometimes our, our experience does not meet our expectations. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you were expecting something, and then when you actually experienced it, it wasn't what you were expecting? I remember longing to be in high school. I remember being in the 8th grade, wanting to go to the ninth grade, move buildings, no longer have to ride with parents to school. You get to ride with one of your buddies. You get to choose your own classes. You get to attend pep rallies. You get to do all sorts of cool stuff that high school kids do. And I got to ninth grade, and I got roughed up. I got locked in my locker. I got mistreated practically every day. There would be certain guys that I would see as I'm walking down the hall from second period to third period, and I would duck into the library or duck into the bathroom so that he wouldn't see me, so they wouldn't slam me against the locker room. My vision of what high school was going to be like was nothing like the actual experience of it. I heard about going to Whitewater when I was a kid. I'd heard about this water park that was this radical experience of everything fun that is water. But I never went as a kid or a high school student or, or, or even uh, into my 20s. And, and then we had someone gracious that gave us uh, tickets last year. And so the Limbaugh's and Sarah went. I think I've told you all this before. But you, you have this expectation that it's going to be the most awesome water day uh, of your life. And we got there and I baked in the sun. 
We stood in long lines. There was one line that we stood in that was up this mountain, Carson and I. I don't know how long we were in that line. But when we finally got to the top, they measured Carson's height. And even though his hair stuck out above, you know, the height level, the girl who's about, you know, 14 and a half says, I'm sorry, you can't ride it. You know, and then we saw so much more of people than what we really needed to see. I mean, there are just certain things you can't unsee. You know what I mean? That, that was whitewater experience. The last argument that I recall Jamie and I actually getting into was at, in the parking lot of whitewater after that day was over. All right, so our, our anticipation of that day was up here. Our experience of that day was down here. And you know what happens? When your experience doesn't meet your expectations, you get confused, you get discouraged, and sometimes you even get angry. Could you say that? Yeah, yeah you do. So I think it behooves us, it, it, it compels us to have the right expectations. We need to know what expectations we should have both in life, in our family, in our community, in our church, and specifically about Jesus Christ. Because what we see in the passage before us is that there are people who have expectations about the coming king, and then their experience of this coming king is really way different than what they expected. I think Mark would say to us from this passage, the king is coming. The king is here. The king is arriving, but he's not the kind of king that the crowds are expecting, and he may not even be the kind of uh, king that you're expecting. And so, come to know him better. Come to see him for who he is. And take out this idea and this creative imagination about the king that you have in your mind and see who he is for who God has revealed him to be. And so, this is what I think Mark would say. Worship Christ as king for who he is and not for who he's not. I want to give you three observations about the king that Mark shows us in this text that will cause us to worship him with greater intensity and greater joy and greater passion for the rest of our lives. The first thing that Mark shows us is the character of the king. The character of the king. I'm sure that many of you probably observed something interesting about verses 1 to 11. Mark spends significantly more time describing the preparation for the king coming into Jerusalem than he does the king coming into Jerusalem. There are seven verses about the king preparing himself and getting others prepared to come, and there are, what, just three about the actual coming. Well, that that is interesting. Why why does Mark do that? Because he, he wants us to know the character of this king. Because if we don't understand his character, we're not going to appreciate his arrival. And if we don't understand his character, we're going to not know why he's even arriving in the first place. And so this is the deal. Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem. All right? It's, it's like from here to Chick-fil-A. It is really not a long distance. All right? It is in walking distance. People made that trip every single day. All right? And Bethany is the home of the good friends uh, that, of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
All right, and so word has spread that Jesus is in Bethany. People are excited. People are anticipating what's going to happen. And the thing is this. We read last week and studied in detail that Jesus is up in Jericho. He's on, just on the outskirts of town. And there is this man named Bartimaeus who is blind. And he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And what does he say? He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples are like, hey, be quiet, be quiet, just, just shut up already. And he says even louder, son of David, in other words, king, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, well, well what do you want me to do? And he says, I want to receive my sight. And Jesus, right then and there, makes a blind man see. And the cool thing that we saw last week is that Jesus says, go your way. Go on your way. And y'all tell me, what did Bartimaeus do? He followed Jesus. So right now in the crowd, coming from Jericho down into Bethany, there is a man who was blind yesterday, who can see today, who is following after Jesus. And thousands of people are around Jesus at this point because it's Passover time. Historians tell us that during the week of Passover, which was the largest festival week of the year, there would be somewhere between 2 million and 3 million Jews in Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire would flock to Jerusalem during this week. And so, when we think of Jesus coming down from Jericho to, Jerusalem, to Bethany in Jerusalem, we need not think of a few hundred people around Him. We need to think of thousands. We need to even think in terms of tens of thousands. And here it is, Bartimaeus has been healed. And you know what else has happened? There was a man named Lazarus who died four days ago. And he's a friend of Jesus. And Jesus shows up in Bethany. Mary and Martha are torn up. They're weeping. People are grieving. He's four days in the tomb. And we all know the story. Jesus goes to the tomb. And with a loud voice, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out! And all of a sudden, this man with grave clothes on around his face and all over his body comes walking out of the tomb. Hundreds of people who had attended the funeral saw a man whom they were just grieving over alive again. And so do you not think that when Jesus begins to plan His way to come into Jerusalem that there is this blind man who could see, there was this dead man who is alive, the anticipation, the excitement level is at a fever pitch. They're ready to make him king. They are bent on making him king. And then Mark tells us this story about Jesus saying, listen, there's going to be a colt on the edge of the next village and he's going to be tied up and I want you to to go and get that colt and I want you to tell anybody if they ask you that the Lord has need of it and, and He'll bring it back as soon as He's done with it. And then that's exactly what happens. What is this? I think that what Mark is wanting us to do is pause. And he's wanting us to see His character here. And I think the first thing that He wants us to see is the omniscience of our King. The omniscience of our King. Some... Some historians, some scholars even say, well, it's likely that Jesus had made pre-arranged plans with the owner of this colt and that maybe somewhere along the way he said, I'm going to get your colt and I'll rent it and all of this kind of thing. And I just 
I really don't buy that idea. Listen, Mark has all along the way told us that Jesus is one who not only sees the physical, but he sees the spiritual. In Mark chapter 2, when he's in that room preaching the gospel and the friends of a paralyzed man let let the paralyzed man down from the roof, Jesus essentially tells the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And people in their hearts and in their minds are confused and in their hearts they're thinking... Who is he to forgive sins? And the text tells us that Jesus knew exactly what was in their hearts and exactly what questions they were asking inside their hearts. And he says, why are you asking those questions? Okay, get up and walk. Take your mat and go home. Why? Because he is omniscient. We see that throughout the Gospel of Mark that Jesus knows things that a man ought not know. Why? Because he's God and he knows all and he sees all. In chapter 8, in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, He's going to be executed, and He's going to rise from the dead. He says it three different times. And what happens? He is betrayed, He is executed, and He rises from the dead. Why? Because our King is an omniscient King. He knows all things. He knew all things then. He knows all things now. He knows all things in the future. And I would tell you, church, He knows your life. He knows your heart. He knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. He knows your allegiances. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. I want to tell you something about this king. He is not an ignorant king. He is not an incompetent king. He is not a blubbering king. He is a wise king. He is an infinitely knowledgeable king. He knows the past, present, and future. And I want to say this. Be comforted today that your king knows you. Be joyful today that he knows you. But also be warned. Because you might can play the hypocrite and be somebody in church, and be somebody else with your family and your friends and your co-workers, and none of us would ever know it. But the king knows, because he's omniscient. Mark is telling us that today. We have an omniscient king. The second thing he tells us about this king is that he is a faithful king. We not only see his omniscience, but we see his faithfulness. He's not just a king, and he's not just the king, he's the promised king. We're going to do something right now that we don't normally do. We're going to take our Bibles and turn to a couple of passages in the Old Testament. I would like for you to take your Bibles and turn to the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 49. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob is at the end of his life. The twelve tribes of Israel are coming from the twelve sons of Jacob. He's about to die. He's blessing every one of his sons. And so he's blessing Reuben in verse 3. He's blessing Simeon in verse 5. And then in Genesis 49, verse 8, he looks to Judah. And he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10. The scepter, that is the kingly rod, the kingly staff of authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Jacob is saying, there is a king that is coming from your line and it will not depart from you and he will have authority and there is something about a foal, something about a donkey, something about a colt that is, he is prophesying here that we don't even quite understand in this passage. But there is a king coming from your line, Judah. I want you to take your Bibles now, fast forward about a thousand years. I want you to go to Zechariah. Now the easiest way to go to Zechariah is to go to the book of Matthew in the New Testament and then go back two books. It's stuck right in the midst of those 12 minor prophets. Zechariah. It's 500 plus years before Jesus comes on the scene. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah. He declares judgment on all of Israel's enemies, all of the children of God's enemies. And in verse 9, listen to what the Lord says through Ze Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Picture Jesus coming. Picture Jesus' arrival right now. Picture Him coming from Bethany to Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, when Messiah is going to come, He's going to come on a donkey. And so when we go back to Mark, and you can turn there now, Jesus is declaring Himself to be the promised King. And Jesus is essentially saying by getting this donkey and putting Himself on it, He is saying God has promised a King who will come and destroy evil. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will be merciful to the needy. He will exercise salvation on the lost. He will identify with the outcast. He will love sinners and be merciful to sinners. And He will right all the wrongs. And He will exercise His loving kindness and righteousness and faithfulness in all the earth. And Jesus is saying by getting on this donkey, I am that King. I am that King. I am the fulfillment of God's promises in Genesis. I am the fulfillment of God's promises in Zechariah. Listen to God's promises in the Old Testament. The Old Testament said that Christ would come from the seed of David. Jesus came from the seed of David. The Old Testament said that Christ would be born of a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. 
The Old Testament said that Christ would establish the new covenant. Jesus established the new covenant. The, the Old Testament said that the Messiah, the Christ, would be betrayed by one of his friends. Jesus was betrayed by one of his friends. The Old Testament said that Christ would suffer. Christ suffered. The Old Testament said that Christ would be executed. And in fact, Jesus was executed. The Old Testament even hints that the Christ would be forsaken by God and Jesus was forsaken by God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises about the Messiah. He is the King. He is faithful to fulfill His promises. And I will tell you this. If He is faithful in all of those ways, the King is faithful to save you if you call on Him. The King is faithful to sanctify you if you trust Him for your sanctification. He is faithful to deliver you in whatever you need deliverance from. He is faithful to help you. He is faithful to provide for you whatever your needs are. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is not a king who is concerned about himself primarily. He is not a king who is selfish. He is not like the kings of the earth who have, who have existed and driven their countries and their nations and their lands into the ground because of their hubris and their arrogance and their self-centeredness. No, he is a loving, gracious, merciful king. Trust him. Trust him. The third thing that we see about his character here is his humility. His humility he comes riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. I probably quote this individual more than anyone else. J.C. Ryle lived in the 1800s. I love his writing uh, here on, about this issue. Ryle says this, Did Jesus come in a royal chariot with horses and soldiers and a retinue around Him like the kings of this world? No. He borrowed the colt of a donkey for the occasion and sat on his disciples' clothes for lack of a saddle. This was in perfect keeping with all the tenor of his ministry. He never heard any of the riches of this world. He never had any of the riches of this world. When he crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was in a borrowed boat. When he rode in the holy city, it was on a borrowed beast. When he was buried, it was in a borrowed tomb. Our king is humble. You know, this act of humility, riding on a donkey instead of a chariot, instead of a nice horse, is really just symbolic of the humility in which he lived his entire life and conducted all of his ministry. I mean, y'all, our king was born in a barn among nasty animals. I want to ask you this question. Where were you born? Our king was... was uh, submitted himself to sinful parents. Our king walked with sinful people. He chose as his friends those who would betray him or deny him. Our king reached out and loved Samaritans and loved Gentiles and ate with sinners and tax collectors. Our king is humble. He refused to be honored and exalted when crowds all the time wanted to lift him up. I want to ask you this question. If a crowd and if a people wanted to lift you up and exalt you and honor you because you have done something that is worthy of that, would you say no? Our king did that. He submitted to sufferings and he died a criminal's death. 
I guess this is just what I want to say here, that at the height of his popularity, at the height of anticipation and excitement about, about his kingship and his royalty, Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to epitomize my royalty by not coming on a chariot, not having a military entourage, n- not in the way that they would expect me to go. I'm going to get on a donkey. I'm going to get on a colt and ride into town. Oftentimes as a preacher, what we need to do is just meditate on what the spiritual message that the writer is bringing to us so that we can it can come home in our hearts. And this week as I was meditating on this, this is what the Lord just impressed upon me. Ryan, there was no job. There was no role. There was no responsibility that was too low for the King of Kings. Ryan, there is no job, no role, no responsibility that is too low for you. And if you're a Christian and a follower of the King, the same is true for you as well. This is the character of our King. He is omniscient. He is faithful. He is humble. Praise His name. The second observation that we make about the King is the celebration of the King. We see it in verses 8-10. through 10. And I think that the Lord would have us see three things about this celebration. Three simple things. The first is we see their actions. Many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Some of the other Gospel writers say that they took palm branches and put these palm branches on the road. And as I said earlier, we're not talking about maybe just a couple of hundred of people. But we are talking about thousands upon thousands of people who are throwing their coats and their clothes and branches and anything that they can find onto the road so that this king can come into Jerusalem for his kingdom. And and really this is just symbolic. What they were doing by throwing their, their coats and their branches and everything else, it's symbolic for saying... We throw ourselves before you. We humble ourselves before you. You can walk on earth, us because we are submitted unto you, O King. That's really the symbolism of why they were doing that. Uh, just kind of makes me think about when I was growing up, the parades that our hometown, my hometown had. We had a homecoming parade and a Christmas parade every year. And it was certainly a lot smaller than what we're seeing here in, in the Gospel of Mark and what Jesus is doing. But just the euphoria the excitement, the, the zeal, the anticipation. I know that as the parade would go on as a kid, you know, you would have like the Boy Scouts, you know, on one vehicle and you'd have cheerleaders on the next vehicle and you'd have maybe the, the brownies on another uh, vehicle. But then the further back the parade came, you know, were the marching bands. And those were always awesome. And then you would have like the homecoming queen, but then sometimes you might have like Miss Alabama, or you might even get like an, an Alabama or Auburn football player, just somebody, some honored person would always be at the very end of the parade. And you would get excited. Well, who's going to be there? And what's it going to be like? And what are the cars going to be dressed up and decorated as? And that's the kind of anticipation that these adult people have. They're like a kid in a parade where candy's being thrown out and goodies, and, and they can't wait to see what's happening next. I mean, they are giddy. And so they're spreading their cloaks on the road. Not only do we see their actions, they look down, we see their words. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting. They weren't murmuring. 
They weren't just at a, at a little above a, a whisper pitch. They were shouting. What are they shouting? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you look at, at the beginning of verse 9, what Mark is trying to give us a picture of is that in front of Jesus, people are saying, Hosanna! Hosanna! And then people behind Jesus are saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And then the people in the front would yell, Hosanna! Hosanna! And then these back here would be, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And it was back and forth and back and forth for two miles into Jerusalem. Just think about how how emotional and how elevated people's senses are at this point. Now, we've got to know what they're saying. Hosanna means save us now. Save us now. Save us now. Deliver us now, our King. And then they're they're quoting Psalm 118. Since we've already done it once today, let's go ahead and let's turn back to Psalm 118. I want to show you something interesting. Psalm 118 is in the midst of what are called the Psalms of uh, Hillel, the Hillel Psalms. These are, these are songs that worshipers would sing as they would be approaching the city of Jerusalem for a feast, for the Passover feast. And so it falls right in line with what they're already doing. And in Psalm 118, wow, Psalm 119 is really long. All right, so here we are, Psalm 118. Let's look down at verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Okay, they're quoting verse 25 when they say, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then verse 26. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what they say over and over and over again. They're quoting Psalm 118 as they enter into Jerusalem with who they believe is the king. Now keep your finger in this text because you're thinking to yourself, they've got it. He's the king. He's royalty. They finally get it. But the irony here is if you look up at verse... Well, let's see. I'm going to say it's verse uh, 19... No. Where is it? Oh, yes, verse 22. Look at verse 22. Mark Holden, would you read verse 22? Are you there? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Built within the text that all of these would be worshipers are singing about Jesus is a prophecy that they ultimately are going to reject Him and they are going to find in Him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense because He's not the kind of King that they were expecting. Listen to me. We see their words. We see their actions. But in the text, one thing that we do not see is their heart. Because you see, the kind of King that they're wanting is a King who's going to bring political freedom. 
They, they want freedom from Roman reign. They want freedom from Roman rule. They want freedom from Roman taxes. They want freedom from Roman oppression. They want freedom from all things that are hindering them from being a great nation and a force of government and, and something that is high and big and exalted above all of the other nations. They want freedom from that. And not only that, they want personal glory. We saw a glimpse of it a few weeks ago where James and John asked, can I sit on your right hand and on your left, James says. They're wanting personal glory. They, they want all of their dreams to, be, to come true. They want all of their questions to be answered. They want their lives to be better. They want their families to be better. They want the glory of success and the glory of power. One of my favorite songwriters and musicians is Michael Card. And he's got an album that's called uh, The Fragile Stone. Some of you may be familiar with it. But on that album, he has a song called Not That Kind of King. Not That Kind of King. And, and in the song, there are three different groups of people that are actually singing, if you listen to it. Um, there is a person who is playing the part of Jesus... There's a person who's playing a part of the crowd, or people who are playing the part of the crowd, and then there are the faithful disciples. And it goes in that order. And I want you to listen to the lyrics of this song, Not That Kind of King. Jesus says, Who do people say I am? Do you think they understand Messiah's suffering salvation brings? The crowd says, Oh, but Jesus... You're not that kind of king. Oh, Jesus, you're not that kind of king. You'll come in power to take your throne. You'll show your glory in Jerusalem. That's what the crowds are clamoring. And then the faithful disciples cry out, Oh, but Jesus is not that kind of king. He has come to suffer and He has come to die, crucified in weakness, and you may wonder why. Who can call the angels? He will not say a thing because you see He's not that kind of king. And if there is one question that Mark is driving you and me to ask of ourselves, it is this. What kind of king do you want Jesus to be? What kind of king do you want Him to be? Do you want Him to be the kind of king that gives you more money? Do you want Him to be the kind of king that gives you more power and more influence? Do you want Him to be the kind of king that makes your kids smart and athletic and successful and humble all at the same time? Do you want Him to be the kind of king that gives you more friends and better friends? Do you want Him to be the kind of king that's going to give you a better house and a nicer car? Do you want Him to be the kind of king that sets you up right next to Him in His glory so that you can have other people looking up to you the way that they're looking up to Him? I don't know what kind of king that you want him to be. But I know this. I know the kind of king that he is. And the call on mine in your life is this. Are you willing to worship Jesus for the king that he is and not for the king that your flesh wants him to be? What kind of king is Jesus? He's a gracious king. He's a merciful king. He is a loving king. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is a sacrificial King. What kind of King is He? He's a personal King. He doesn't sit up on His throne in His temple and stays away from us. Rather, He comes to us and identifies with us and relates to us and loves us in a very personal and intimate way. He is a good King. He is an eternal King. Listen, you can think about all the kings you've ever studied about in history. King Henry's, King George's, King everybody's. You know what? They're dead and gone. Jesus is eternal. Give your life to the King. The One who is good and gracious and merciful and loving and eternal. There's no other King you need to give your life to. Whether it be the King of your creation or the King of this world, give your life to Jesus. And so, the crowd's reaction is spot on. Their words are right, their actions are right, their heart is wrong. So let's look at verse 11, because we we see the character of the king, we see the celebration of the king. In verse 11, we see the arrival of the king. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If somebody had a dictionary right now and opened it up, to the word anticlimactic, this scene would be the picture right next to it. <laughs> this is just not what we're expecting. And this is, this is not what Mark's readers were expecting when they first read it. And this is most certainly not what the crowds were expecting. All right? Tens of thousands of people are gathered around. They're throwing their clothes down. They're throwing their their coats down. They're throwing the branches down. They're they're waiting for Him to come into town. And He comes into town and the crowd dissipates. People go their own way and Jesus walks up to this massive temple. And He walks in. And He doesn't take His place in the holy place. He doesn't go inside the holy place to the holy of holies and, and, and exercise His glory there. He doesn't sit on some throne that may be waiting on Him there. He walks into the court of the Gentiles and what does He see? He sees thousands of people trading their monies and their animals. Tim Keller who I was reading on this passage, he says, think of how tumultuous, loud, and confusing our financial trading floors are. Like, think about the New York Stock Exchange. You watch CNN or something, and you see how crazy it is, you know, on a day where there's a lot of movement. Y'all get that picture in your head? Tim Keller says, then add livestock. (laughs) This was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to find God through quiet reflection and prayer. What is Jesus doing? He's casing the place. He's looking out to see what is here. And as a righteous, good king who exercises not only loving kindness and righteousness, but judgment and justice in all the earth, he is looking what he's going to have to do the next day and the next days that come. Why is there a letdown? Why is there a disappointment? Why is there an anticlimactic nature to verse 11 when we're all excited and we're looking forward to this King coming? I think we can say it in three words. Or maybe four. It's not finished. His work is not finished. He's not done yet. The King has not completed His task. 
I want you to just look up at me right now. You can not be concerned about your notes, not be concerned about other things. And I just want to simply ask you, who is the king of your life? I mean, what really reigns on the throne of your heart? I would say this. Your lifestyle demonstrates who your king is. The way you spend your money demonstrates who your king is. The way you treat your spouse demonstrates who your king is. The way you treat your children demonstrates who your king is. The way you relate to people both inside this church and outside it demonstrates who really is the king of your life. So I want to ask you, who's your king? Who is your king? Is this this person that we just saw, this omniscient, faithful, humble king, is he your king? Is he dominant in, in your thoughts and in your desires and in your longings and in your, and, and, and in your lifestyle? I will tell you, there is not a more important decision that you would ever make than to give your life to this sovereign, royal king. So I will tell you this. There's going to come a day when the king returns. And you know what? He's not going to be coming on a donkey. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I would say come to the servant king today so you don't have to face the fierce king on that day. When Jamie and I lived in California, we had a favorite place to go on holidays, spring breaks, anytime we got an opportunity, and that was Yosemite National Park. In one of our trips, we decided to make a, about an 18-mile round-trip hike in one day up to the top of Half Dome. And so we ascended about 4,800 feet over about nine miles. We walked along the Nevada River as it was flowing the opposite direction. And we saw some really cool things as we approached. And, and so we are anticipating something that will be really cool. I mean, we wouldn't be spending an entire day and walking that long to think that it's not going to be cool, but I will tell you, my, my expectation level wasn't just out of the roof. It's like, well, this will be nice. We've done a lot of hiking. It'll be another really good hike. We come up to the very bottom of Half Dome, which is this massive granite rock, and there are these wire cables that you have to use to pull yourself up this huge rock. 
And so you, you pull yourself up, and Jamie, it was so steep, and the angle was so acute, Jamie stayed down for about 30 minutes. And I went up on my own, and then I coaxed her as I would shout down, come up, Jamie, come up. And she also came up this top of this granite rock. And as we got up to the top, and we went out kind of close to the edge, we looked across to our right, and we could see the Sierra Nevadas for miles and miles. We looked to our left, and we saw Yosemite Falls falling thousands and thousands of feet, this massive waterfall. We looked down to the Yosemite floor, and we could see trees and, and just glorious waterfalls and streams and rivers. And then we looked up, and I, and I just felt like if I just reached up high enough, I could touch heaven. My experience shattered my expectation. Shattered it. And I know this. That one day, when the clouds open up, and Christ returns, I don't know what your anticipation level is for that, it will be shattered when you see Him. It will be absolutely shattered. And I will say this, you will not regret giving every minute of every hour, of every day, of every year of your life to this King. Worship Him today. Glorify Him. Give Him not only your life, but your heart. He is worthy.